You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It was really sort of an October surprise, if you will, which was not, you know, a, a term that was really used then, but that's what we can think of it as now. That James A. Garfield would become the nominee of his party was quite unexpected, but not totally unexpected. Some people talked about it, but the odds were up against him. The other contender was Grant, former president and hero of the Union. Another contender was James Blaine, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives. And the man that he was supposed to be at the convention speaking for, Treasury Secretary John Sherman. Those were the contenders. Yet, as historian James Ford Rhodes said it, nobody can doubt that Garfield, who had this magnificent presence and stentorian voice, could command the attention of the convention. Garfield was very well known as a speaker, was a great speaker, was a a very much sought-after speaker. That's Todd Arrington from the James A. Garfield historical site, the author of James A. Garfield, The Last Lincoln Republican. Going back to 1868, for example, the first National Decoration Day ceremony, which of course we now know as Memorial Day, um, which was held in Arlington National Cemetery, which at that time was still just a few years removed from being, you know, Robert E. Lee's front yard, basically. Um, Garfield uh, was the keynote speaker. You know, he was he was fairly young at that point. He'd only been in Congress for a few years, and yet he uh, rather than some of these other much better known members of Congress or orators, is selected to be the uh, speaker for that. Garfield actually was already in line for a promotion. He was <laughs> he was going from the House of Representatives to the Senate in early 1881. Garfield had already been elected to the Senate by the Ohio legislature. Sherman supported him in that. Of course, like uh, with with all of his other campaigns, you know, Garfield is kind of very much behind the scenes. He doesn't want to appear to be too eager for office or anything like that. Um, So when Sherman supports Garfield for that Senate seat, uh, Sherman, of course, then requires that Garfield support him, Sherman, for the 1880 Republican presidential nomination, which, of course, Garfield agrees to do. And, you know, as the convention gets closer and closer, the convention was in Chicago that year, and it was in June of 1880. Uh, as the convention gets closer and closer, Sherman starts making more and more demands of Garfield to the point where finally Sherman tells Garfield he wants him, Garfield, to make the speech placing Sherman's name and nomination. And so Garfield really doesn't want to go to this convention. Uh, he wants to stay home in Ohio. He and his wife are doing all kinds of work to their farm and, and to the, the house, really kind of putting the house in, in the shape that they want it. But he's now obligated to go to Chicago and 
and speak on behalf of John Sherman at the Republican National Convention. Here's how Candace Millard, in her book, Destiny of the Republic, describes the Republican Convention in Chicago that year in 1880. Although the hall could accommodate thousands of people, it was full to overflowing. Every seat was taken, both on the floor and in the balcony, which rose to the ceiling in steep, vertiginous layers. And every inch of standing room had been claimed. Mortal enemies sat shoulder to shoulder. Reporters hunched over six long tables, elbowing for room. Into this comes James A. Garfield, congressman from Ohio, from the area around Cleveland, student of the classics, college professor and college president, excellent speaker. This, uh, you know, mythical uh, story about about 1880, where, you know, where Garfield sort of coming out of nowhere and being this total dark horse. And, you know, he was certainly a dark horse. He was not anyone that the vast majority of people were expecting to be nominated. Mm -hmm. But there had been some conversation. I mean, his name was out there. He's a very astute politician. He doesn't do anything to tamp that down. But I do believe truly that he really didn't think anything was going to come of it. He even challenges ballots that he hears that are for him. Rises in a point of order. There are ballots. Some of them have my name on it. No man should be able to be nominated without his consent. And I have not. And there's an interesting account, actually, of this uh, story from James Fort Road, where Chairman George Horse has, don't put without my consent in your book, put without my dash because I cut him off with the gavel before he could do it. If he thought there was any legitimate chance that he would be nominated, he wouldn't have gone anywhere near that convention. He tried to get himself ruled out for president, and the chairman, who was a fan of his, more to the point, wasn't a fan of a third term for Grant, didn't want that to happen. Even the chairman realizes, hey, we're moving in the direction here of really having a decision, and we think maybe it's a good decision or at least one we can all live with. I mean, that's really what you want in a compromise nominee uh, is somebody that everybody can get behind and live with. Mm. And uh, and so Hoare basically kind of clamps him down and tells him to take his seat. But it's that old story of 19th century conventions long ago. The two contenders, Blaine and Grant, couldn't win either one of them, though they tried for 34 ballots. It's when he defends three delegates from West Virginia. The convention passes this rule that says, essentially, you have to support the nominee of this convention. You have to pledge to do it now or go home. Roscoe Conkling, senator and pretty much the boss of New York and the Republican Party, wants them thrown out. Garfield rises to defend these three delegates. A number of people, including Garfield, opposed this because they basically said it's undemocratic. Mm. You know, everybody here, everybody, every delegate here should be able to vote his conscience or vote for the candidate of his choice, whether or not his, you know, the bulk of his state delegation is supporting whether it's Grant or John Sherman or James Blaine or whoever. So, yeah, Garfield does speak up and oppose the unit rule and really helps defeat that. Uh, and of course, He's also trying to do, trying to defeat that because he knows darn well that the reason Conkling really is pushing this is because that helps Grant. Uh, And so he's really trying to not only speak up for, you know, these delegates who who kind of feel like they're, they may be forced to support a candidate they really don't want to support, but he's also 
very much uh, playing politics there very smartly. And he makes such a compelling speech. They win on this rules question, and the delegates are not removed from the convention. Conkling is trying to get his guy Grant elected, but at the same time, he sees what's going on, writes a note to Garfield. Do we have this convention's dark horse? He kind of knows what's going on and what's about to happen. He gives his uh, nominating speech for for Sherman. I've heard at least a couple of accounts that say, like, he mentions Sherman's name but once during the speech. <laughs> Feels like yeah. more of a Garfield, or at least to the audience. Maybe that's a fair way to say it. To the audience, it feels like a Garfield speech. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was definitely an atypical speech for Garfield. Very almost quiet, um, kind of contemplative, I guess you mm. would say, speech um, for Sherman. And he uses this really powerful metaphor of the, of the ocean and, you know, talking about, you know, the, the, the waves are cresting right now because we're all here in Chicago and we're all excited. And but this isn't where the decision will be made. You know, the tide will go back out and it's where, you know, kind of when the waves are lower that that the uh, that the decision will really be made, meaning, you know, in the fall when when the election comes around and towards the end, he asks this question of the audience, the gentlemen of the convention, what do we want? And, of course, there's this one lone voice that cries out, we want Garfield. <laughs> and, you know, kind of people kind of laugh and, you know, they start hooting and hollering. And it's really at that point that he finally does say Sherman's name, that he is placing a nomination, John Sherman of Ohio. So he really didn't pound away at Sherman's name in that speech. On the 35th ballot, Garfield gets 50 votes. Grant gets 313. Blaine. Sherman, Edwards, other folks get the rest. Grant has just not enough to win. The anti-Grant forces realize here they can't beat Grant, but something's going on with this Garfield guy, this convention phenom. They all side with him. And at that point, you know, you have to consider how long have these these delegates been in this hall? They're hot. They're tired. They're they've already been here longer than they thought they would be. And on the thirty-fifth ballot. 399 votes go for Garfield, a majority and enough for the nomination. You know, when he comes back from this convention as a somewhat surprise nominee, you know, people are already waiting for him. And, and they want, you know, it's reporters, it's members of the general public. And pretty soon you start getting groups of Civil War veterans, of which Garfield was one, uh, groups of businessmen, you know, ladies groups. So you get all different kinds of groups that, you know, really just kind of start showing up on this property in, in Mentor, Ohio, which is about 30 miles east of, uh, of Cleveland. You work at the um, James A. Garfield National Historic Site. Mm -hmm. Is that indeed his house in Mentor? Is that what it is? Is essentially his house? Or? Yes, it's, it's the home and mm -hmm. what's left of the property. At the time of the 1880 campaign, it was, you know, about 160 acres. Today, mm -hmm. it's about eight so we're obviously much smaller. Uh, but yes, he, Garfield did run those the nation's first kind of formal uh, front porch presidential campaign, and he ran it from this home that we have on, on the site and that we, uh, in normal circumstances, you know, when we're not talking about something like COVID-19, uh, we, we take people in and show them, show them the house and talk a lot about the 1880 campaign and Garfield as this kind of very unique candidate who's running a very different style of campaign. You know, Garfield was a big believer in not seeking an office. He really felt like 
you know, it was more proper to let the office come to him. The front porch campaign kind of happened somewhat organically, whereas Garfield eventually decides, well, these people are all coming here to see me. It seems kind of rude that I don't go out and at least acknowledge them. And that's really how he started giving these speeches from the front porch. Yeah, in a way, we think of front porch campaigns, um, at least I always have, as sort of like, well, they were the, the way you did it in the 19th century, and they're sort of like a more passive campaign compared to stumping. But, you know, when you look at it that way, it's almost like the really passive thing to do is, say, like a Lincoln, where it's just you just stay at home and mm-hmm. and write to people, uh, my positions are in my uh, 1858 run for the Senate and and the speeches there with Senator Douglas, those are my positions. Uh, you don't need more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really passive way, but at least it, this is a way of sort of like, it's one, it's actually a step forward in that you're kind of like accepting people and having an event, but it's at your house. We talk about that, that, that you know, this is kind of a, a step on the road to the more modern style of campaigning, where, you know, Garfield is one of the first presidential candidates who, who does interact directly with the public. Um, you know, obviously the, the speeches he gives from the front porch are very different than what we hear from candidates today. Mm. Where, you know, they are openly seeking the nomination and the office, and they are talking about policy positions and what they intend to do about, you know, foreign policy or gun control or whatever. Um, you know, those are not the speeches James Garfield is giving. He's not talking about himself. He's really talking more about kind of the history of the Republican Party and why the party should be retained in power and what the party has contributed to America in terms of, you know, abolition and, and, and all of these other things that, uh, that has made the, the Republican Party at that time, you know, uh, doing very well in, in national elections. And we, we do talk about that at the site where we mentioned that, hey, you know, this was really a step. You know, if you hate modern presidential campaigns that go on for two years, mm-hmm. you see commercials, and you hear it on the radio and they're, you know, filling up your mailbox every day. You can kind of sort of thank James Garfield for that because he sort of put us on the road uh, to the more <laughs> modern style of campaigning. It's, it's quite quite a bit of separation there, but uh, you can say he kind of put us in, you know, had started us walking in that direction, I guess you would say. Garfield crafts his letter of uh, acceptance, but unlike his boss, John Sherman, or the current president, Rutherford B. Hayes, who are supporters of civil service reform, he doesn't go full hog on civil service reform in his letter. He's somewhat light. This is before civil service bill, the Pendleton Act, was passed. That would come later, before there was a commission. But President Hayes had agreed to follow civil service rules, something that a Grant administration would not have, or any stalwart administration would not have. Sherman was a little ticked off that his friend is nominated. You have to look at the difference between the public and the private statements that Sherman makes about this whole mess. Uh, Sent his friend to the convention and he gets nominated. Uh, He does tell Garfield, such reform is so ingratiated now by Hayes' actions in the minds of the leading sensible people. Anything like an abandonment will not meet their favor. It's after the Civil War. It's Reconstruction, where a tax collector for the federal government, a Republican appointee in the South, is kidnapped, is beaten by the Ku Klux Klan. He literally gives his friend who's in Congress the shirt 
that he was wearing when this incident occurs. It still has the blood stains on it. He sees this. It's the 19th century. There's no way to record events. The bloody shirt is the best way for him to record to his congressional friend what's going on. And in the midst of a bill about reconstruction, right at the moment when it's needed, this congressman pulls out and waves in the air the bloody shirt. It works. And it's something that Republicans will try again and again. It was hurled against Seymour, Greeley, Tilden, four elections in a row. The Republicans win, since Lincoln wins his first. So the bloody shirt also becomes what today we'd call a kind of counter meme. In fact, probably the reason that's in history is more not for its successful use, but its use as a counter meme. Meaning, there you go again. Every time we a Democrat runs, you keep saying, you know, waving the bloody shirt, waving the bloody shirt. It was uh, what you might call uh, the virtue signaling is the is the term that people use. You know, that's the way it was being characterized. You're just waving the bloody shirt. But it still hurts Democrats, and it became standard issue. You're calling it the grand old party already. The Democrats are washed up. But we shouldn't say that at this time, because in the 1870s, Hayes is president. There's some fighting within the Republican Party, and Democrats get the House and the Senate back. They feel pretty good about 1880, and they nominate General Winfield Scott Hancock. You're not going to wave the bloody shirt at this guy. He was standing there when Pickett's charge was coming at him, at his troops. So, you know, Republicans try it. It's not very successful against Hancock. And he's kind of equalizing this issue. They still say, well, we understand, okay, you personally are not a... Uh, a confederate, obviously, or a sympathizer, but your your people that are supporting you, you're going to end up uh, voting for pensions for former Confederate soldiers, what they call the Confederate claims issue, rebel claims issue. Hancock puts it down at once. The government can never pay a debt, pension, or reward of any sort for waging war against its own existence, period. In this campaign, You've got two rival candidates who are both kind of novel candidates of both sides. Like, it's not your usual Democrat. It's not your usual Republican. It's not your kind of, like, corrupt, I'm going to appoint all kinds of people to office. It's this noble former college president who speaks very well. And you've got not the usual Democrat. It's a Democrat who can say he actually fought against the South. Every indication is this is going to be a tight one. Plus, when you look at the kind of the micro-politics, the internal politics on both sides, Conkling is, leaves the Chicago Convention in 1880 disappointed that Grant or some other stalwart weren't given the nomination. He doesn't even like that his collector of the ports of New York, Chester Arthur, is the VP candidate, thinks he shouldn't have done it. He just wanted to totally abandon the Republican nominee at that point. Thinks he's probably in with Blaine. Wants to mostly sit on his hands. So you've got an organization problem within the Republican Party there. There could be weak in the state of New York where you don't want that. And Garfield is not Blaine. He's not Grant. You can't stick much corruption on it, but he does have a little bit. He was involved in the Credit Mobilier scandal. And this is where railroad shares were provided to congressmen for their votes. It's not a lot. But it's $329. It's not nothing. And 329 or 329 will be a slogan in the campaign that the Democrats use. 
It's advantage Hancock. But then with Hancock, can't get him on the war issue, but he does flub his answer on the tariff. He gives an incoherent answer. The tariff is the major issue between the two parties in the 19th century. Generally, Democrats want low tariff, Republicans high. Um, Democrats want what they call tariff or revenue only. This is the big slogan. Now, what does that mean? It means simply we only want enough tariff placed on items that you might import, only enough to fund the government. No more. We don't want any surpluses. We don't want huge amounts of cash coming into Washington. Hancock flugs the answer. At one point, there's a cartoon that says, you know, has uh, Hancock whispering to uh, to one of the other Democrats. Maybe it's Belmont. Who's this tariff? Why is why is he for revenue only? Real close. And even even the vice presidential candidates are important here somewhat. They're not going to be too important in a 19th century election, but you will hear the names mentioned. So it'll be Hancock English and Garfield Arthur. Uh, you're usually going to see posters displayed that'll have two oval shapes, the kind of shape you know from a dollar bill where the person's head is in it with the presidential candidate, the vice presidential candidate, sometimes of equal sizing. So you will see a little about those vice presidential candidates. And, you know, English is... From Indiana, that's really his big. Um, you know, he had a little bit of a of a role in the Kansas-Nebraska fight way back in the 1850s. And other than that, he's just a guy from Indiana. So Democrats want to carry that state. And Arthur is, of course, a very important person in the stalwart organization in New York. So on issues, even party organization, they both got problems. Even the Veeps, even they tried religion. Indiana Campbellites or Disciples of Christ. Garfield is a disciple of Christ. So there's a, a large amount of Campbellites who are in Indiana who are Democrats, and Republicans make sure to go out there and try to turn them. That's how you did it in Indiana. There was another way that Indiana politics worked in the 19th century. According to James Ford Rhodes, the state was awash in $2 bills. Voters were paid, quite simply. And Nobody was more aware of that, perhaps, than the vice presidential candidate, Chet Arthur. Rhodes is a fair historian, but he does come from the opposing side to the 19th century Republican Party, so understand that. But he does relate this story of a Delmonico's fundraiser, where Chester Arthur says that Indiana was a democratic state, reliably so, but could be conquered with a close and perfect organization and lots of... And then he looks around the room and says, I see the reporters are present. Therefore, I will simply say, everyone showed a great deal of interest in the occasion and distributed tracts and political documents throughout that state. Those in the audience, readers of Rhodes' book, would have to use their imagination as to what those political tracts were that Indianans found so entertaining. And who knew that Chet Arthur was so funny, you know? I mean, that's really the way to look at him. He's going to be the Toastmaster at a lot of occasions. That's why it was kind of funny that he became president for a lot of people. Something else to consider. Rutherford B. Hayes, the incumbent president. He is, for a lot of people, doing a pretty good job managing the country well. He's neither a stalwart nor in the half-breeds, which is the name for Blaine's faction, sort of. But... 
He does run things the way a lot of people admire. And uh, he's not running for a second term. He was mocked as old Granny Hayes by Grant supporters, stalwarts in particular, old line people who wanted the political machine to work, who wanted to take people who were in their civil service jobs out and put political hacks in. And while he did some of that, he wouldn't do it anywhere near the level they wanted. That helped to boost Garfield in this election. On the other hand, Conkling just seemed to be sulking during this campaign. And at one point, he's asked to give a speech and gives what a reporter calls an insulting commendation about Garfield. Maybe mentions his name once. You know, they know it's going to be a very, very close race. Um, You know, when you think back to what had happened in 1876, where Hayes lost the popular vote and, you know, they had to to create this electoral commission that was dis- that was uh, to decide who, in fact, won the the electoral votes of the three southern states that were disputed, and of course Garfield ends up being one of the people on that commission who, in fact, uh, you know, decides in favor of Hayes rather than Samuel Tilden. So, you know, Democrats certainly know that they have a shot in this election. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Perhaps if San Francisco had just settled for a lower-level municipal building or got it done faster, then there wouldn't be this eyesore of a sandlot next to the piece of land where the municipal hall would be built. Uh, Not the municipal hall that you see today, though it looks something like it. It doesn't get built until the 1890s. But right around the time of this election, a few years before, there's still this sandlot. And something else happens. There's a recession going on about 1877 and a lot of unemployed workers, particularly in the West. Right now, San Francisco is the city of California. And in that city, Dennis Kearney takes up his soapbox in this empty sandlot. People come to hear him. There's a lot of unemployed workers. About 2,000 will come to hear his speeches. In our golden state, all these evils have intensified. And at first, he's mostly attacking the owners of the railroads, the owners of the large corporations who have fired working men. He's part of the Working Men's Party, a party that goes all the way back to New York City in the early 1830s. But he takes it in a different direction. Chinese immigrants have come to America in uh, fairly large numbers. The driving force is that they're workers on the railroad. They also work in some mines. At first, he says to workers, you know, we really should be thrifty and efficient workers like the Chinese. But soon realizes that his audience would be more receptive to a different turn of phrase. Their dress is scant and cheap. Their food is rice. They hedge 20 in a room, 10 by 10. They are imported by companies, controlled as serfs, worked like slaves, and at last go back to China with all their earnings. See, 
Kearney, if not for the racial component of this speech, you know, has some points that might sound very, uh, you know, progressive, liberal perhaps. He was called a communist by his opponents. But one thing he was guarding against in his speech is counterattacking against those that would call him a barbarian. Do not believe those that call us savages, rioters, incendiaries, and outlaws. We seek our ends calmly, rationally, at the ballot box. Well, Kearney would say this, but at the same time, his people would riot and destroy property. There was a riot in Chinatown that caused several lives. There were so many of these working men's harassment of the Chinese community that they learned to sort of to, to get word of when things were coming. Some of the local authorities sympathetic and would give them a warning. Kearney also threatened to hang people. One of his infamous speeches, he actually leaves the Sandlot and goes with his worker army up to Knob Hill, where all of the capital is. His particular target were the railroad and also the chairman of the Pacific Steamboat Company that was responsible for bringing immigrants into San Francisco. And he would say, remember John Lynch, or make references to hemp. But he wasn't talking about pot legalization. He's talking about rope. So despite his talk of being nonviolent, his rhetoric certainly was very much so. A more sympathetic voice is had by Mark Twain. In 1901, he writes, the labor of Chinese was a blessing. It built California. Henry George writes about how the Chinese became victims of robbery. They could not defend themselves. They were not allowed in California to testify in court. They were fair game, George said, for all types of rascals. George lives in San Francisco before he'll move to New York City and run for mayor there. Dennis Kearney becomes 1877 and 1878's political phenom. His attack on aliens is all the more striking because he himself is from Ireland. And so are many of his followers. Nonetheless, he keeps going. At one point, he just tells the railroads, fire every Chinese person working for you within three months or you'll face the rope. They don't take him up on it. But laws are passed in California, and a mayor is elected in San Francisco that's sympathetic to Kearney. He takes his show on the road, goes to Boston, even meets Rutherford B. Hayes at the White House, who gives Kearney an audience without being moved too much by what he's saying. That's a serious matter. San Francisco newspaper says this. It's no joke. You know, we've been accustomed to saying that the agitation is no importance to be laughed at. It'll run itself out at his own will. Under mistaken notion of what liberty consists of, we have permitted a handful to threaten murder. So says the California advertiser. We shouldn't think that everybody is with Kearney. It's just he's getting a lot of press and, you know, there's pushback. And Chinese in America are not to be seen as just a universally passive bunch. Uh, a Kuang Cheng Ling writes an article in San Francisco newspapers, including the Argonaut. You keep calling us depraved, immoral, unclean, Ling writes. Yet you invite us to wait on your table, to your bedchamber, to prepare your food. There's a glaring contradiction here, Ling writes. As to our slender fare and as to our economical habits, so objectionable to your orators, this is a swipe at Kearney, of course, Ling says, these are not the results of choice. They fall to poverty. Another one who stands up to Kearney is Wang Chen Fu, nationally famous. He would become founder of Chinese American newspaper. He's not in San Fran. He's in New York. But he hears 
Kearney when he speaks there and actually challenges him to a duel, but does so sarcastically, saying, Kearney can have his choice, chopsticks, Irish potatoes, or Gatlin guns. Kearney didn't take him up on the duel, but did call him insulting names. The anti-Chinese issue is a national one, and both Democrats and Republicans see firepower there politically as a kind of 19th century wedge issue. The California laws that are passed are ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. At that time, you'd have one person riding circuit, and this was Stephen Field, Supreme Court Justice from California, who declared that the anti-Chinese laws were degrading punishments upon a single class of people who are entitled to equal protection. Yes, it's true that, uh, you know, this is a different time and different interpretations, but there were voices raised, including judicial ones, and seeing this for what it was. President Hayes vetoes a national bill excluding Chinese immigration. Now, he does so, and this is common, and this is going to come up later, does so based on the fact that there's a treaty with China. This is a treaty done by Burlingame, who is Lincoln's ambassador to China, approved by the, the U.S. Senate, that allows for immigration from China. Now, he, he does that, and this would be the, the stance of a lot of presidents and other politicians. Hey, we have a treaty in place. Now, you know, one also gets the sense that while that is what they're saying, they don't like the issue as well. They don't like what's being done. Uh, both Hancock and Garfield, their party platforms have a anti-Chinese language in them. And this is a direct result of the Sandlot. It is a little lighter in the Republican platform. They're just against the unrestricted immigration of Chinese. So it's like, we're going to restrict it, but it's still going to be allowed. Democrats say, no more except for travel. Kearney doesn't get very far, even though he has a small moment he tries in the 1880s to become the VP candidate for the Greenback Party, led by Benjamin Butler. Butler never offers him the nomination. Besides, Butler's ticket only gets 175,000 votes. Kearney's regularly ridiculed in the press. There's even infighting within his own working man's organization, and he's kind of kicked out. And he doesn't have much of a future, never gets elected to anything. Rhodes actually points out a story I haven't seen elsewhere. But, you know, Rhodes' book is a little older than others, a little closer to these times. And he says he loses support and the kind of heroic nature when it's found that uh, he uses a Chinese laborer to wash his clothes. That kind of hypocrisy never happens in politics. Still, Kearney puts this issue on the map. And eventually in 1882, the Federal Chinese Exclusion Act, with a few reductions to the legislation imposed by then President Arthur is passed and becomes federal law. This election is, before that, kind of an interesting thing that happens in 19th century elections. And this is that certain states will vote early, like Maine is one of them. So is Indiana. You know, it'd be interesting if that would happen now, right? Maybe, um, you know, we can think of this in terms of like mail-in votes or something. That's all another another topic. But at least in terms of the timing, if we were able to see them, like a state voting early and actually releasing its totals as well. So you kind of have an election before the election. It turns out that Indiana goes to the Republicans. Now, some of this might be later in the 1888 election, there's actually going to be someone who's caught telling people to vote, uh, to buy voters in blocks of five. And that's going to be the delight of political cartoonists, but that's not available yet in 1880, but a lot of people do know the deal. 
looks like in Indiana, at least in this election, the Hancock forces, despite their running mate being from the state, were outgunned. So this is a very big break for the Garfield campaign. And really, if you're a Republican and you're winning Indiana, probably have a good chance of winning. It's October 20th, 1880. The election's going to be November 4th. The New York Truth publishes a letter. It's short, and it's signed by James A. Garfield. It's addressed to H.L. Morey, a Massachusetts industrialist. Todd Arrington talked about that. It was really sort of an October surprise, if you will, which was not you know, a, a term that was really used then, but, uh, but that's what we can think of it as now. It's basically a, a letter that appears in a, in a New York newspaper called Truth, um, ironically enough. Um, and um, it, it purports to be a letter written by Garfield in January of 1880, and it is on uh, House of Representatives stationery. Of course, Garfield is a longtime member of the House of Representatives, and it's really addressing the idea of Chinese immigration. And the letter says this. Individuals and companies have the right to buy labor when they can get it at the cheapest. We have a treaty with the Chinese government. I'm not prepared to say that it should be abrogated until our great manufacturing and corporate interests are conserved in the matter of labor. And the thing is, it sounds reasonable. It even sounds like something Garfield might say. But this is the past. And this position is now opposite of both parties' platform, opposite of the mainstream in the country or the feeling in the country. Written in a way, though, that it's not so blatant. Um... Here's a problem in 1880. You've got communications are not the same. Garfield's in Mentor, Ohio. He's not in Washington. He's not near his office. And at first, um, as our guest Todd Arrington talks about, he just ignores it. And it doesn't help, I guess, that Garfield, who, you know, has this sort of uh, this way of just, you know, whenever he sees something about himself in the paper that's not true, he just doesn't respond. He just figures, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and your your sibling is, is, is bothering you and your parents mm-hmm. tell you, oh, just just ignore him or ignore her and they'll stop. Um, Garfield kind of has has for a long time had this same idea that, you know, when he, when he sees things in the paper that he knows aren't true. And this goes back to, you know, he was sort of wrapped up in credit mobilier back in the early 1870s. He just doesn't respond. He just lets it sort of fade away. While he's doing that. Ignoring it, hundreds of thousands of letters are printed up by the Democrats and sent to California. It's only five votes. Um, They also sent to Nevada. It's only three. But everything counts when things are close. Also, the major Democrats, including the former chairman of the Democratic Party, Abram Hewitt, lead the charge. Hewitt says, look, I've been in Congress. I know James Garfield. I know what his handwriting looked like. This is absolutely a letter written by James Garfield. They, Hewitt and, and, and many Democrats, they immediately say, oh, you know, this is the nail in Garfield's coffin. This is something that they're more than happy to jump on to, just to try to, you know, try to further damage Garfield and make this thing even, even closer or potentially give them, give them the White House. But the first doubts begin to appear in Boston newspapers. They find... There's no H.L. Morey anywhere near the town that he's supposed to be from that is Lynn, Massachusetts. Lynn is a town where there'd be manufacturing, but no H.L. Morey can be found. The letter says he's part of the employer's union. There's no such union. 
But that's in the Republican papers. Those who are getting Democratic papers are seeing their version of the story, where they're actually seeing some confirmation, and they're seeing um, several prominent Democrats say that this is an outrage, and this is absolutely his letter. And then, for those in out west, news isn't traveling fast enough in any case, even if they were to get a different side of the story. A few days pass. The New York Truth wants to keep the story alive, so to speak. They publish now not just the text of the letter, but the actual facsimile, the image of the letter so you can see the handwriting. People who know Garfield are saying, this isn't how he writes. He's, he's 99% sure, as soon as he sees it, that he never wrote this letter. You know, like, he, he, you know, like, any, like a congressman even today, he gets thousands and thousands of letters. He probably responds to as many as he can. He's doing most of this himself. You know, it's not like he had, you know, a huge budget for staff or anything mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when he's running for president, he has two part-time private secretaries. That's it. <laughs> so he actually, before he responds at all, he dispatches one of those secretaries, a guy named George Rhodes, back to Washington from from Ohio to go through his files and make sure that he really didn't write this thing. Again, he's almost positive he didn't. He knows the handwriting doesn't look right, but he wants to be 100% sure before he speaks up and says, this is, this is false. Now, here's where, you know, it's often said that, that, you know, how useful can a VP candidate be, right? Well, in the 1880 election, here's where Arthur comes in helpful. He gets together a group of New York operatives to work on this and try to find out who is the author of this letter. Garfield, meanwhile, gets a copy of this facsimile of the New York Truth and realizes immediately it's not his handwriting. He also had sent his assistant to Washington to search any letters, and he's hearing back from the assistant after a couple of days. They can't find any such letter in his house files. And so Rose does, in fact, go to Washington. He goes through Garfield's files and finally reports back to Garfield. Nothing like this in here. Garfield, you know, basically responds... Uh, and says it's it's a forgery, it's not true. Meanwhile, Republicans get word. The person you're probably looking for is this fellow named Kenward Philp. And Kenward Philp is kind of a prankster, and he's really good at uh, faking handwriting. He's forged before. And he does it for no reason at all, sometimes just to get publicity, just to amuse himself. He's called before a judge, and there's an immediate investigation in New York City of this matter. And they're really, Republicans are working pretty quickly to try to get at least some kind of uh, evidence out about this matter. Democrats call foul. This is just a way to try to quell the furor over Garfield's positions. And the New York Truth slams Garfield for denying the story. You know, and once he was just a guy with a wrong position, now. He is a written liar. And now the investigation begins to bear fruit. Kenward Phil denies it, although he does admit that he wrote an editorial under an anonymous name against Garfield. Certainly not a crime in the United States, but he didn't forge this letter. People that know Garfield are in the East. Garfield himself is all denying that this is his handwriting. Hewitt goes as far to say this. He keeps kind of shifting. He says, okay. Yeah, perhaps the body of the letter is not Garfield's, but he signed it. So, like, maybe an assistant wrote the letter, but Garfield signed it. Now, the court is is really working fast before the judge, and 
they hear from two witnesses. One is named Samuel Morey. He's not H.L. Morey. He didn't write the letter, but he says he has an uncle who is H.L. Morey. And he lives in Lynn, Massachusetts. So at least initially he's credible. And then there's another uh, Samuel Randall who is, um, says that he, he knows H.L. Morey. Of course he does. Philip denies it. You have this figure of Philip. I don't know whether he's the 19th century Cato Carolyn or, or a Matt Drudge. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. But the Philadelphia Free Press says it this way. Kenward Philp the assistant editor at The Truth, who was arrested for complicity in the forgery of the Chinese letter, is a little fellow with a high forehead. Okay, I guess you got to convict him then, right? You know, phrenology and all that. <laughs> um, and a restless eye. Ooh. His reputation as a practical joker is metropolitan, if not national. He is never perfectly happy unless when engaged in the preparation of something funny. If it be true that he's the author of the Chinese letter, it is then without doubt, that he did the thing for the purpose of gratifying his desire to quietly enjoy the discomfiture its publication would occasion. He has been a politician in the local affairs of Brooklyn for many years, though he's never naturalized and never attempted to vote. He's an Englishman by birth, and the son of the founder and one-time editor of the London Standard. He's a descriptive and humorous writer of the very highest order of ability, and as companionable and jolly as anyone would care to know. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. He is said to be gifted with the power of penetrating the weaknesses of people and was so uniformly successful in hitting the mark that there was over a period of his editorialship in Brooklyn papers that he wasn't pursued by at least a dozen irate citizens who would have been glad of the opportunity to quarter him. A fellow of infinite jest, he never found himself in a position from which he could not escape with his colors flying. That he is now quietly laughing at all the commotion he has occasioned, if he really be the author of the Chinese letter, is very likely. So you go, Philip Kennard. I don't know. His, uh, he'd go on to, I guess, uh, benefit a bit from the publicity. Um, he was acquitted. Yeah, it wasn't a, it was a very quick investigative matter. I don't know if I'd call it a trial. He was acquitted and would go on to write a book called John Brown's Legs. It's not the John Brown of Civil War fame. It's a servant to Queen Victoria, but it's told from the point of view of Queen Victoria just kind of being obsessed with this servant's legs. And but that's all the author can talk about in this this running satire. It's kind of like a, a little bit of a Tristram Shandy type 
story. Eh, it's out there on the free free online text world. But there goes Kenward Philp. Um, we don't know if he's the letter. He certainly is the author of it. He certainly could be. What we do know is that the later investigation, the truth will claim that it was placed on the editor's desk. When he was away from his desk and walked there, the letter was there. He obviously consulted with um, Democratic congressmen and bigwigs, the New York Truth being a Democratic paper, before they released the story because they were in kind of coordination. What's going to happen in the course of the investigation, though, is that Samuel Morey is going to be proven a liar, and so is Randall. With Randall, it's just a case of He's actually someone else, and the authorities know it all along, so they were, were so delighted when he testified. Uh, he's just a, one of these people, 19th century character, perhaps it still happens today, that for an amount of money would go to court and testify for what was needed, and he had done it um, all over the East Coast. In the case of Samuel Morey, he is a Morey. He is from Lynn, Massachusetts. He, too, saw an opportunity. He had been at the newspaper office before going to court. Uh, he had met with the Democratic Party officials likely received an envelope. It's his stepmom, Clara Mori, who also testifies in the trial and says that Samuel has no uncle and there is no H.L. Mori. Now you get the, the, the last back step from Abram Hewitt and the Democratic Party said, well, okay, perhaps Garfield didn't write this letter, the body nor the signature, but it really does reflect the positions that he takes anyway. The Maury letter goes in the treasure chest of October surprises in American elections, perhaps forgotten now, but certainly an effective one because it certainly affected Garfield's vote in the west uh, in the western states. Uh, but ultimately, you know, he still managed to win the presidency by you know, an extremely, extremely thin margin. I mean, something less than yes. ten thousand votes out of you know however many million cast. So it was a razor thin margin. Um, While perhaps the GOP through quick legal maneuvers, Chester Arthur may have helped with, perhaps, you know, may have dulled some of the damage, it nonetheless caused damage. Um, One way to see that is the loss of five electoral votes in California, which go to the Democrats, had previously been Republican and will be Republican in the next election, the 1884 election. And and that's seen directly in the town of San Francisco, which in 1880 goes for Hancock. In 1876, it had gone for the Republican candidate Hayes. In 1884, it will go for the Republican candidate Blaine. In 1880, it goes for the Democratic candidate Hancock. And so do California's votes. So does Nevada's three votes. So does New Jersey's nine. And New Jersey has a kind of uh, kinship with the Democratic Party, Working Men's Party. Newark is a very strong town that would be ripe for the picking for a strong Democratic uh, campaign that had, you know, something going for it. When all the ballots are counted, there is less than there's less than 10,000 votes out of nearly 10 million cast across the country. When it remains the closest election ever in the popular vote, it's closer than even Kennedy-Nixon 1960. Um, An extremely high turnout. Now, you don't have 18 to 24-year-olds voting, which have historically dragged down turnout numbers, but you have about 78% of those who can vote voting. But in the end, it's New York, which Garfield carries by 20,000 votes out of 1.1 million that are cast. That determines the outcome in the Electoral College. 
There's so many factors going on. One factor is that William Grace is running for mayor of New York on the Democratic ticket, except he's an anti-Tammany candidate, kind of the Michael Bloomberg of his day, a very rich and wealthy. The W.R. Grace um, Corporation is going to be his namesake that he'll form later. Uh, He becomes mayor twice. First time he runs as a Democrat, arguably, but you could use the term Democrat in name only as far as many rank-and-file Democrats in New York City were concerned, and they weren't very excited about the ticket. That may have depressed things for Hancock. On the other hand, Conkling wasn't so thrilled with Garfield, which may have depressed things in the parts of New York State where Conkling controlled as well. In the end, Garfield is elected, tragically doesn't get to serve very long, and I talked with Todd Arrington, who works at the James A. Garfield National Historic Site, in Mentor, Ohio. And I talked to him about his book, The Last Lincoln Republican. Uh, You have a book. Let's talk about your book and your book's thesis. Yeah, the book is called The Last Lincoln Republican, uh, the presidential election of of 1880. It's out now, and uh, it's published by the University Press of Kansas. They do a great series on presidential elections, and they had never done one on 1880. And what I'm really suggesting in the book is that, you know, Garfield, um, and we sort of touched on it here in our conversation, but, uh, you know, go a little bit deeper into it in the book. Mm. You know, Garfield really was, I think, you know, the perfect person for the Republicans in 1880, even though he was kind of this rather unexpected nominee. Um, and I think that, that you know, really he, he had been so strong on civil rights throughout his congressional career you know, before, you know, as a young man, he was, he was, well, initially he didn't think it was very Christian to be in politics. Uh, he was a member of the Disciples of Christ and, and they, you know, really kind of, uh, you know, didn't favor political involvement. And, and Garfield followed that as a young man until he went off to Williams College up in Massachusetts and suddenly got his eyes open to abolition, full of, of, uh, of slavery and, and became very, very vocally anti-slavery and really became something of, he never really called himself an abolitionist, but I think by today's standards, you know, that's what we would, we would call him. So he'd been very, you know, very much an abolitionist. He, he had served in the Union Army. He had, he had uh, written some really powerful letters back to his wife and some of his friends here in Ohio, you know, talking about how, how just repulsed he was by this whole slave system because he was in places like Kentucky and Alabama and Mississippi and really seeing uh, just how brutal and, and inhuman uh, this system really was. So, you know, he was very, very anti-slavery. And then when he went to Congress, he, he, he was very, very pro-civil rights for, uh, for the formerly enslaved. And I think in my view, in 1880, Garfield represents really kind of the last the last stand of the original Republicans, the Lincoln style Republicans who view the Republican Party to, you know, at least somewhat provide equality, uh, social equality, economic equality. You know, these are I mean, and frankly, you know, a little bit later in American history, these are guys you would you would think of as basically progressives. You know, they're, they they see a place for a very active and activist federal government to try to guarantee the civil rights of, of the formerly enslaved and really provide economic opportunities for for uh, for the American people. And, and Garfield, in my mind, is really kind of the last stand of of that Republican Party. By 1880 
and certainly by you know later than that, you know, 1884, 1888, you get start getting Republicans who are, you know, have at one time been very strong on civil rights, but now are and eh, they're kind of moving away from that issue. They feel like they've done enough on civil rights and they're really ready to start finding new alliances. And they find those with, you know, industrialists and financiers. And this is kind of where the Republicans start to get that reputation as the party of big business. And, uh, and, but in 1880, they could have gone that way. And then, you know, because they chose James Garfield, I think they really rep- that represented really that kind of last, last hope of the Republican Party really holding on to its true roots. And so that's where, you know, I sort of came up with this idea of Garfield as the last Lincoln Republican. Yeah. No, that's a great concept. I, I think, um, a lot of times when they do the rankings of presidents, you know, it'll kind of be like, well, we can't include some of these William Henry Harrison because he was only there a month. You know, sure. with Garfield, you're already seeing signs. I I think that, you know, he he may have been a very good president. I love one one thing that I read recently where, you know, Blaine wants to be a secretary of state, big, powerful figure. He can't say no. But he says, you can be my secretary of state, but you can't run against me. You can't run for president. Yeah. And lo and behold, you know, in 1890, in 1888, you know, Benjamin Harrison's going to win. Same thing happens. And he spends the whole four years worrying if this guy's going to, because he never gets to that same pledge. <laughs> so Garfield just seems like this real good politician and, and effective person that, um, who knows, right? Who knows? Yeah, I, I think, um, I, as I said, I think Garfield was exactly who the Republicans needed in, in 1880, mm-hmm. maybe to kind of remind them who they really were. As the, as they were, even some of the really former radicals. I'm not crazy about that term, but you know the. Mm. I don't think they were really all that radical, <laughs> but um, you know, but even some of those Republicans had kind of by 1880 said, ah, oh, you know, enough with civil rights, and you know, we 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 beat the Confederacy, we abolished slavery, passed these three Reconstruction amendments to the Constitution. Enough already. We we need to start thinking about some other issues here. And, you know, Garfield was one of the one of the, the more prominent Republicans who was still out there as late as 1880 saying, no, we we still have some work to do here. And we still have millions of formerly enslaved people who are looking to us and need us uh, to, to, to do the right thing uh, and to really, you know, make sure that 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 new birth of freedom that Lincoln talked about in the Gettysburg Address really does come to pass because it is threatened right now, and especially by 1880. You have you know, white uh, Southern Democrats who are, you know, doing everything they can to, put, to reinstate white supremacy in the South and really turn the Democratic Party back over to white supremacists. You know, Garfield is kind of a, a bulwark against that. And um, so I think he's exactly who the Republicans needed. I think that to me, at least, that really then compounds the, the tragedy of his death. It's tragic because he's a young man. He's only 49 years old when he dies. You know, he's assassinated by a, a guy who's, you know, mentally unstable. Um, that's all tragic. And he's, you know, he's a husband and he's behind a big family and this kind of stuff. That's all, of course, extremely tragic, the more human side of things. But I think from a political standpoint, you know, it's speculative, of course, but I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting academic exercise to just ponder what might have been different mm-hmm. had Garfield lived to serve a full term or two full terms. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, who who can who can tell? But boy, I'd like to think that maybe some of the, the the social unrest and the discord that we're seeing in the streets now 
that is very necessary, I think, uh, you know, to, to, to continue to push us to be who we're supposed to be and who, you know, who we say we are on paper, at least as Martin Luther King said, you know, in the, in the 60s, that we need to be true to what we said on paper. And we're still trying to do that. Um, I just wonder how much of that maybe would have been would have been better had James Garfield had a chance to, to serve a, a full term or two as as president. It's just, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. But I do think that things certainly could have been different and certainly could have been better. Yeah, no, no, definitely a fair point. makes a good point. I mean, it's it's hard to say, right? Alt history is a difficult game to play, but one thing can be certain. Events that happen, you know, the earlier a change or revolution, say, happens, the more time you have that hopefully that will have been instilled. So it's certainly, certainly possible that things on one of the major issues was still affected, affects us today could have been different i want to thank you for listening i want to thank my guest who was todd arrington of the james a garfield national historic site uh, if you're in that area around cleveland you know by all means go visit it when, when you're able to if you want to learn even more about james garfield like we didn't get into his history and him as a boy you know the ohio versus the world podcast has got some great stuff uh, i'm featured on that podcast what else we got going? We've got a Patreon. So www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash, and then it's just simply the letters of my history can beat up your politics. Patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Thanks for listening. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.